Okay, so if you, um, there should be handouts in the back. So we're talking about our second topic. So we did Christians in the law, the Old Testament law, um, previously. And we're starting off on abortion. And so it is, you can see in the introduction, it's the probably the most politically, morally, and emotionally charged issue um, that people can be divided about in, in, in this country since probably slavery. And so uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time at the beginning kind of talking about um, just abortion and its history and where, how we got to where we're at today, and then we'll dive into the, the scriptures. Um, so uh, the first two questions there, I mean, if you could think about arguments that you've heard, discussions you've had, you know, there's, there's usually a, there's very few people who are, are apathetic. Most people have a very strong view, either pro-choice, and they're very passionate about that, or they're pro-life. And so maybe uh, let's start with um, pro-choice. What, what is it you think drives in arguments? What is, what is so passionate behind that? I think, like, from what I've heard from, like, the, like the pro-choice side is it's more about, like, the situation and the circumstance that the woman falls under. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like that's, like, one of the lead things in this discussion is, like, well, if the woman's in this situation or she's in an abusive relationship or she was raped or mm-hmm. any of those uh, uh, circumstances, they feel like that is, like, the reason why this should be an option and the need mm-hmm. for it. Yeah. Yeah, so they, many times there's a, there's a, a resistance to, to say, well, what about these, except these rarities, special cases, these... Things like rape and incest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another common thing I've heard is like, you know, like the state, like foster systems and adoption systems are so like messed up. Mm-hmm. And like there's like there's honestly horrible things that happen to children mm-hmm. placed in those yeah. systems. Mm-hmm. And so people use abortion as like a way to like keep a child out of that circumstance is like a common like <clears throat> reasoning I've heard. Mm-hmm. Which I have my own rebuttal to that. Right, right. Yeah. We'll save those. We're going to get to. We're going to get to all that. But we're trying to understand, right? What What are we talking? Right? What's What are the arguments, and maybe what's the heart of them? And so many of them have like, I guess, good intentions isn't the, like the word because mm-hmm. what they're doing like isn't good. Mm-hmm. But like in their minds, they have themselves convinced that like this is the best option. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, I also have to think that if if you're pro-choice, you cannot be uh, calm about it. You have to be 100% in on it. Because if you're wrong, you are committing murder. So, so there's a sense where you're dealing, they're dealing with their conscience. Yeah, you, right? you cannot allow in any way for you to be wrong. Otherwise, you have to admit that you committed murder. Yeah, that it's an interesting point. Is that the, the the particularities of the conscience of the person you're talking to can greatly influence the the reasoning and the justification behind it. Most common argument I've heard is my body, my choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's not alive, and it's in my body, so I can do with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about why, right? Why, why do pro-life? Why do we, or why would when you hear pro-life, 
debates, people speaking, right? Why are we so passionate or why are we so strong in our disagreement? It's a human life. What's that? It's a human life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, we could say that that's enough, but any, any other reasons, special things about circumstances, scenarios, that human life that make it such a, such a big... Uh, reason that you would want to speak out, or it should have to suffer the choice of its parents. It, what's that? The baby should have to suffer the choices of its parents. Okay. Yeah. So you're the 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 choice of the parents, right? Is is what the baby's not. They don't really have a choice in the in the matter. That baby's made in God's image. Yeah. Yeah. And so. Um, you get at that one of the points that we'll talk about. I think probably the most succinct argument that you'll see people say, right, is that abortion is what murder. Okay, and so that's a that's a succinct way that people will often voice the the pro life position, right? If if abortion is murder, like you're saying, then it kind of sells the issues, and so we're. We sometimes there's disagreement upon, you know, what constitutes abortion, what constitutes murder, mm -hmm. right? And there's a lot of details, like in those cases where we'll talk about when does life begin is a common question, right? And and that's something that's um, debate a little bit. So we're gonna look at like we're gonna try and define as clearly as possible, you know, what do we mean by when we talk about abortion. Uh, even biblically, what is murder? Okay, and we'll look at biblically what what evidence do we have in terms of when does life begin? What does the Bible say? And it does speak on all of these issues. Okay, and I think that's the key thing. If you kind of follow the the paragraph below, sometimes we have a reluctance um, to speak on issues in society if we if we're not sure where or how. We like we have a conscience conviction. We know that this is wrong but we're not really sure where in the Bible to go, where does it point to, right? And so we wanna, sometimes we can sidestep it or say, well, we shouldn't or not be as strong as, as we could or we should. What's the danger of maybe opposing abortion but not making it um, as big of an issue or as an important issue? I think triggering um, the woman that like for instance, like in a rape case, mm -hmm. um, which is like the big one that I hear when it comes from pro-life, is mm -hmm. like when you say, "Well, abortion is murder." Oh, pro-choice. My God, sorry. <laughs> um, but when you hear from their side, they're like, "Well, from pro-life's choice, it's abortion is murder, right?" But they're like, "Well, I was raped. I didn't have that choice to like, mm -hmm. like it was forced upon me, mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff." And so it's like when you say that, it may trigger them to like, you know, have a a response or it may trigger them mm -hmm. and tell them, like tell that person like what happened to them. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and that's that's gonna be something where um, although it's a very small percentage of the abortions, we do want to answer that objection mm -hmm. and what what are the positions on and what would we say biblically to someone who might be in that case. Um, any other things? Why why is why is it such an important ethical issue for our day and our time and our country? I think part of the ethos of our society is kind of radical autonomy. Mm -hmm. That I need to do what's best for me. It's my choice. 
Mm -hmm. Hero, you know, being heroic is going against what everybody else says to be yourself. Mm -hmm. And so there's not a reason, there's kind of this implicit rejection of our obligation to others, mm -hmm. the obligation to the child. And, um, and the reason why abortion is so important for, let's say, feminism is it levels the playing field so that women mm -hmm. can be whatever they want to be mm -hmm. without the built-in biological disadvantage of being out of commission. Mm -hmm. Uh, for a certain period of time because of, of childbearing. So as part of that, it's, it's critical to a larger yeah. push and a larger ethos, I guess. Yeah, and I think that's one of the keys is to recognize sometimes uh, people may oppose abortion on a deeper, more fundamental level. And sometimes we have talked about how you have, you know, how does the society view marriage? How does it view sex, and how does it view children, right? And <laughs> biblically, we would have marriage first in our commitment, and then we would have sex, which would then lead to children within the home. And so abortion, there's many, many societal issues that are aimed to break and separate those things so that you can have just whichever ones you choose. Um, you can have sex without marriage, or children without sex, or children without marriage, or, you know, there, there's a picking and choosing to where it's seeking to, again, individual autonomy to separate and break all the bonds of marital, parental relationships. And so that can be a deeper issue that maybe someone just on the grounds that I want to be able to do whatever I want, and you shouldn't be able to tell me, right? It's my body. Any other kind of thoughts or comments before we jump in? You know, this may be kind of off the subject, but I talked to one young lady who had had an abortion, uh -huh. and she said she would definitely not recommend it as a solution mm -hmm. because she now has severe mental issues because of her bad choices. Mm. She's never gotten over mm -hmm. You might actually say killing her baby. Mm -hmm. She wasn't thinking about that at the time, but now that she's a few years older, mm -hmm. it weighs heavily on her mind. Yeah. And I do want to say that Sometimes we can have a discussion and there's an assumption like, oh, we're the church, and so we're not affected by this. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not really accurate, okay? When we teach about the biblical sexual ethic, we don't assume that everyone has followed that perfectly. Mm -hmm. When we talk about divorce, we don't assume that no one's been divorced. And so there's a sense in which it's a specific application of the gospel that any and all of us may have been affected by have had an abortion, know someone in our family who's had an abortion. Um, it's one of those um, things that can be done fairly discreetly, mm -hmm. and it's not public knowledge in such a sense that a divorce might be. And so just be aware that as we're talking and discussing it, yeah. it it's very could be very common that it has, has happened and affected. Yeah, I, and it's important to remember that men are often complicit in abortions as well. Mm -hmm. um, there's a relatively famous basketball player mm -hmm. who his, you know, his personal messages to his girlfriend 
saying you need to abort this child. Mm -hmm. um, you know, kind of made the news. Mm -hmm. So it's not um, not just a women's issue. Right. It, it impacts them most of all, obviously. Mm -hmm. but right. There's but a reason men are very pro-abortion too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very much so. And because in both cases, it allows them to not have children that they don't they don't want. Yeah. And to break those bonds. So it's it's an issue for both men and women for sure. Okay, let's keep going. So we're gonna let's talk about definition. Um, so by definition, abortion is an expulsion of the human fetus before it is capable of surviving outside the womb. And we're gonna if you think about this, dividing it up, there's spontaneous and then there's something that's induced, right? So spontaneous abortion is something that takes place naturally um, without any external intervention. Often think about a miscarriage, right? Something that no one causes intentionally, it happens spontaneously. Um, so for instance, the egg may implant in the mother's womb, but it's expelled during her monthly period. So um, what we're talking about now really doesn't focus on that. We're talking about the induced abortion, something that the, um, someone takes specific actions to cause. <clears throat> so this part can be a little bit tough, uh, especially if you're a little squeamish. Um, but these are, um, we're going to just walk through some of the ways that abortions uh, can happen. So uh, suction aspiration. So 80% of the first trimester abortions um, and this, this was might be at at the time when I'm not sure what year we did this because I was doing some statistics, but it might be different. It might, might be a little different. I have more chemical now. Yes, I was I was gonna say um, just on like a little bit of Pew research. Um, that I believe that 2020 they said was the first time that met um, chemical passed surgical yeah. in abortions. So there's. Uh, in 2020, they said around 53% were through chemical, taking of pills and medication, mm -hmm. and which we're going to get to in a second, and 47% were the surgical method, and that's the first time since 73. And so there's been a... It doesn't mean that there's fewer surgical, and it necessarily could be that there's more uh, using pills and chemical um, to cause it. So, um, but... Nevertheless, right, with, with the mouth of the cervix dilated, the doctor inserts a hollow tube with a knife-like edge. The tip uh, exerts suction and basically tears the baby to pieces, sucking them out of the womb. So then you have dilation and curatage, uh, DNC. So it involves dilating the cervix, a series of instruments to allow them to insert uh, curette, which is loop-shaped knife. It scrapes the placenta from the uterus, cutting the baby apart. The pieces are drawn through the cervix. Tiny body must be then reassembled to make sure no, no parts are left inside the womb. That would cause infection. C, you have saline injection, um, sometimes referred to as salt poisoning. Uh, removes some of the amniotic fluid and replaces it with this toxic saline solution. The baby breathes and swallows the solution. In one or two hours, the unborn child dies from salt poisoning, dehydration, and hemorrhaging. The mother goes into labor about 24 hours later. 
and delivers a dead or dying baby. And so, so far, um, these three, along with um, the hysterotomy, during the last, last three months, so this is a late in the pregnancy. Abortions could be performed by a hysterotomy, which involves opening the womb surgically, as in a cesarean delivery, but this is to, the purpose is to end the infant's life. Instead of being cared for, the baby is wrapped in a blanket, set aside, and allowed to die. So it's very, as in many times when you address sin, it's, you're looking behind a curtain that no one wants to look at. Yeah. There's a lot of hidden aspects to what, what, abort, what actually happens in an abortion. Um, these last two um, are mainly the chemical process. And there's a lot of different names for these. So as I was doing my research, you know, there's the, the name of the, the chemical itself and then the, the brand names. So when you look at them and say, oh, it looks like they're using this drug or that drug, many of them are just variations of these main two. And they accomplish kind of two specific purposes. So uh, prostaglandin, uh, use of chemicals uh, developed by Upjohn Pharmaceutical, and it, it, it injects these hormones into the womb. Uh, it causes the uterus to contract and deliver the tr child prematurely too young to survive. Sometimes a saline solution is injected first, killing the baby before birth. So this particular drug, it basically causes the uterus to contract and to, to deliver. And then you have RU486. Sometimes this is known as the morning after pill. It's taken with the intent of blocking hormones, which would allow the fertilized egg to develop normally. While it's labeled the morning after, it's most effective when taken between week seven and nine. The obvious appeal of this drug is that it allows for a non-invasive abortion. However, research has shown that fatality rate for the mother is at least 14 times higher. Um, so again, this one, uh, the RU46, is basically the, the goal of it is that the, the child will die, and once that happens, the body will deliver it. In the first one, it causes delivery, and it's too early. So oftentimes they're used in conjunction, where they'll take one that's in, meant to end the life of the, the child, and the other one causes it to contract, so it's not a prolonged process, and it will be delivered. <sighs> Any questions on these? It's a tough part. So on letter F, that last sentence says, however, research has shown that the fatality rate for mother is and such an aspiration of abortion, so that one has higher chance of harming mothers as well? Yes. Yes. And that's what's pretty much over the counter now? I think so. Mm -hmm. Insane. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 17 gives birth. And doctors are prescribing it too, and insurance is covering it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and so you will see um, the argument about what's safe uh, is one of those things that's relative. So oftentimes statistics are given in number of deaths per hundred thousand, and so it doesn't mean that women don't when people when the FDA says something is safe, it doesn't mean people don't die from it. It means they have developed a certain guideline that if it's below a certain number per hundred thousand, they deem it relatively safe. And it's viewed much like a medical procedure where, well, if most of them are 
quote unquote successful. Uh, we'll see. It's, let's see. Okay, so let's walk through the history. Now, thankfully, there's there's an addendum that uh, we can add at the when we get to the end of our, our history here. But um, so we have starting in '73. Um, this is you know in, in our country and our culture that that was a big moment because uh, they ruled that an unborn child is the property of the mother. It's part of it's it's uh, under her control that she might dispose of it for any reason during the first six months and. So any reason during the first six, that was Roe, and then after, if, in the opinion of the, her physician, it's necessary to preserve her life and health, right? During the first three months of pregnancy, abortion may not be regulated. So there was no, they did not allow any sort of regulation on the first three months. During the second trimester, it may be regulated only with reference to protection of the mother's health. Um, so... 73, um, any kind of cultural things you remember going on then? Yeah, Watergate. I don't remember, but... But it happened around that time. <laughs> I, I shouldn't say remember, but uh, like know of in that era. Right after the late 60s. Right? Vietnam War. Yeah, a lot of stuff. Also the uh, homosexual. Okay. There was quite a bit of, you know, I, I mean, it would be naive to say that there hasn't been sexual immorality all throughout, but there was a definitely a distinct, the 60s kind of deemed sexual revolution type of thing. And so there's a certain coincidence again with this. There was a 60s, a breaking of this bond that was intentionally kind of under attack, that sex should be free anywhere, not just in marriage. And then you see right here in the 70s this breaking of this bond uh, since between the sex and... Um, so why do you think that they made distinctions at the second, first trimester, second trimester, third trimester? What's in their minds? Why would you think they would do that? Most likely they think that in the first trimester the baby is even less a baby in their yeah, and why might they be okay with re regulations later on? Because it becomes later and later. It's more like a baby. Yeah, it, to, it's harder to deny its, its humanhood, right? It looks like a person, right? Um, there's a, for, for many years, the, the term that we debated was partial birth abortions. A time where the baby could be partially delivered and then aborted, so outside the womb. Um, and so again, from the beginning, there was this sense in which um, at the later it got, it, maybe it shouldn't be as acceptable. Right? <coughs> so let's look. Um, so then in 73, a companion case on the same day as Roe v. Wade. It struck down a Georgia law that placed limitations on abortion. So any attempts to place limits on the woman's right to abortion had to conform, had to, conform to a compelling state, of state interest. Um, they interpreted the mother's health to include her psychological and emotional health in addition to her physical health. So why was that significant, the term health being expanded? What did that? 
Why do you think that was so important? Yeah, let's say they just said um, in the third trimester is acceptable if the mother's life was at risk. What would that not allow for? Anxiety, depression. Yeah, I'm, I just don't want to have this baby, right? So if the law had been stated that way, well, well you're, you're not in danger of dying physically, so it wouldn't be allowed. So with um, you know, health, being expanded to cycle, right? I'm upset, I'm distressed, I don't think I can provide for this baby, you know, I don't know what, what, if the father's gonna support me, etc. to basically no, no rationale at all. Um, I just don't wanna have the baby. So, let's keep going. We'll get to the scriptures <laughs> soon. Uh, Planned Parenthood versus Danforth in 77, it removes some limits that have been placed on abortion. Uh, so the woman and the physician were the only ones that were legally involved. Um, again, uh, at this point, um, we're going to get to talking about whether or not the father had any say. I think there's, um, at, there was a time in which the, um, there had to be consent by both parents. That was an, uh, an obstacle that was then removed later. So there was a time in which both the mother and the father had to consent to the, the abortion. So Webster, this case is the first one that uh, limited the individual's right to the abortion. So reversing some of the lower court decisions, uh, they upheld a Missouri law that prohibited the use of public funds for non-therapeutic abortions. Um, it was building on this, uh, this Hyde Amendment that dealt with the use of federal funds for abortions uh, to prohibit tax funds. Then in 92, kind of moving forward, this is Planned Parenthood versus Casey. So Casey was the governor of Pennsylvania and um, had placed some limits on abortion. And the law in question required that the women seeking an abortion give informed consent after receiving certain relevant information 24 hours before the procedure. So they explain the risks, what's going to happen, the, how old the fetus would be, the, the probable age. Informed parental consent for a minor, so if they were 17 years old, 16 years old, and evidence of spousal notification. So pro-life advocates regard this case as the best opportunity to overturn Roe v. Wade. And pro-choice hoped that the Supreme Court would strike down all the limitations. So neither was totally satisfied. They did not overturn Roe, but retained all the limitations except spousal notification. So in that, in that case, they said, no, you don't have to require that you notify the spouse. But they did uphold um, consent for a minor um, that they, they did uphold the, um, they had to wait the 24 hours. So we're seeing a little bit um, kind of for both sides there. Now Clinton in uh, point F here, when we had President Clinton there, um, we see some changes that he made. Uh, there was a protest going on on January of, of 93. And so he signed an executive order that did these three things. So it lifted this gag rule. So up to the time, uh, federal workers, um, in federal, cl any clinics, excuse me, clinics that had federal funding were prevented from mentioning abortion as an alternative to dealing, so dealing with um, unwanted pregnancy. So they had to wait until the patient brought up. So he abolished that so they could, you know, suggest it at that point. He lifted a federal prohibition against performing abortions on a military bases. So up to that point, you couldn't get an abortion on a military base. And so that was lifted. 
and he ended the moratorium on federal funding for uh, fetal tissue research that came from abortions. So um, at the time, before Clinton, you were, they were prohibited from doing research on tissue from aborted babies, and he lifted that. So um, there's a note there, uh, in two terms, uh, following later, uh, George W. reversed this order and increased federal restrictions. So we see it's, it's being fought back and forth. We're getting up to, now we're in the 2000s, so uh, Stenberg versus Carhartt. So at least 30 states have passed a ban on the, what we I mentioned earlier, partial birth abortions. Uh, shortly after Nebraska passed a law of this kind, there was a physician who performed abortions. Carhartt filed a complaint constitution, challenging it was constitutional. And uh, the Court of Appeals declared that it was unconstitutional. The Supreme Court agreed to hear this partial birth abortion case. Okay? And it says that uh, they overturned Nebraska's ban on partial birth abortions by five to four. So you can see how divided we are on this. It's becoming very much uh, a hotly fought issue. Five to four cases are being partially on one side, partially on the other, some are re remained. Um, it's, uh, Justice Breyer wrote that um, the Nebraska law resulted in an undue burden upon a woman's right to make an abortion decision. So, had we been teaching this two years ago, that's where our legal yeah. would have ended. But we have Dobbs in 2022, so about 18 months ago, right, June of 2022, um, we had the Supreme Court rule that there's no constitutional right to an abortion, which effectively meant it was up to the states and the states could legislate whether or not abortion was legal or not in their states. And, um, Without being a, much of a legal expert, from what I see, we have about 14 states where it's completely banned. We have about 14 states where there's no limits and it's completely protected up to any point in the pregnancy. And then the rest of them have a varying um, when it's legal and when it's not. It's legal up to the certain number of weeks and there's a variety, some say, 12 weeks, 15 weeks, 18 weeks, 22 weeks. Many of them say viability, where it leaves it to the physician. If the fetus is viable, it's not legal. If it's not viable, it is legal. So we're in kind of the aftermath now where states are sorting out. And we're likely, again, there's a lot of division, so you're likely to see a divided outcome with the states. So as we work through that history, I mean, what, what are some questions or thoughts that you have about where we're at, um, how we got here? I think politically, it's shown to be a real winning issue for the pro-choice pro crowd where when it's put up to vote, um, I think the pro-abortion crowd wins every time. Yeah. Yeah. And so those 14 states, uh, there's a couple of options where a lot of times the state Supreme Court mm -hmm. will reject the law. Mm -hmm. Or um, like in Kansas, we had the value, value both. Them both amendment that failed miserably. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, there's a, uh, I think there's that element. And then I think even within 
Christianity, there's two positions. There's incrementalist and abolitionist, mm-hmm. where abolitionists, let's say, voted against mm-hmm. value them both because it didn't go far enough. And so I think within the church, there's some, a lot of debate about how to handle it. Right. So incrementalists, right, would be in favor of any legislation that reduces the number of abortions, right? And then you've got abolitionists. And so this is a this is a good part of our study because you are gonna you, you often face when you talk about engaging the culture and you're in this and you're involved in a, a, a country where you have rights to participate in the government through voting. And what would what do you do if you're faced with an amendment, let's say that will reduce the number of abortions, but will legally protect some abortions. You see the difference here? So an abolitionist would not approve of that because it's protecting some, and an incrementalist would vote for it because it's going to reduce the overall the number of deaths. So there's, a, there's an ethical question there that, that comes up. Uh, I think you're, you're right. In, in that same, some of the Pew data that I was looking at from their research, their um, 2022, around the time Dobbs came out, they, you know, do you, do you think abortion should be legal? And it was about two-thirds, a little less than two-thirds. 62% said it should be legal in all or most. And 36 said it should be illegal in all or most cases. And so it's, it's almost like things have switched maybe in the time of Roe. The consensus was it shouldn't be, um, as in, the, in terms of the general public, but it got that uh, governmental through the courts, and now we've almost yeah. flipped. So okay, let, that leads us to positions, right? So look, you've got A, B, and C, pretty easy, right? Always, sometimes, and never, is uh, is kind of our our different uh, potential. So. Advocates for always say various factors relate to a woman's determination to have an abortion. Some of these would include therapeutic, the life of the mother might be at risk, eugenic, the baby is retarded, handicapped, psychiatric, the mother's mental health could be damaged, socioeconomic, the birth of the child would thrust economic hardship, violation, the pregnancy resulted from rape or incest. And so always is saying that there's, it should be allowed if there's any reason that the mother has to choose that abortion. Okay. Yeah, Leo. I also um, heard about one, uh, like in the newer stance that um, that the mother shouldn't have to have the baby just because it's going to make her have to go through pregnancy, mm-hmm. and so just the pregnancy makes changes to the body, mm-hmm. and so that their stance is that they shouldn't have to go. Right. Right. If we if we talk about the option, well. Um, you could get it for adoption or these things. It's like, no, those nine months um, are a violation. And it is, it is very interesting, much in the same way that your societal arguments for, for a variety of uh, moral sins, they change with the culture. And so as one argument kind of becomes, the flaws become apparent, or as people's underlying theology about life and humanity changes, um, the arguments are going to change as well. Yeah, we've been, you're telling me about um, like younger 
millennials, Generation Z, they don't want to have kids because they don't want to bring children into this world. And so there's a real um, dispositional change towards even starting a family. Mm -hmm. So having to have a kid is like punishment enough. Mm -hmm. And we should not force that upon people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the view of the child itself as to is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? Yeah. Is family a good thing? Is marriage a good thing? There's all these yeah. rejections. And, and in one sense, too, there is, it definitely, definitely creates a brighter and brighter distinction and contrast when you interact with people and they see people who love family, they love marriage, they have a very healthy and loving marriage, they love their children, they're excited about having a baby. And so just that's one thing to remember as the culture is increasingly dark or uh, turning away from God, it does create more opportunity for the gospel to shine mm -hmm. in a brighter sense. And so, you know, there's many that would take this rarely position, right? An abortion may be allowed if the mother's life is at risk, as is the case with ectopic or tubal pregnancies. The doctor, excuse me, when that fertilized egg becomes lodged in the fallopian tube, the doctor only has uh, two options. He can intervene by surgically removing the child in order to save the mother's life, or do nothing and allow both the mother and the baby to die. So there's uh, abundant medical information that no ectopic or tubal pregnancy has ever resulted in a live birth. So there's a cases in which you see that although there is an, a fertilized embryo, it's, it's going to die. And so that question of life and death becomes uh, the issue is, are you aborting a baby that can live, that will live, or one that is guaranteed to die? And can you save the life of the mother or not? Um, other would other people in this this position would also point to there's a there's some disagreement on um, cases of rape or incest in their mind it's it's unfair to force a victim of sexual abuse to live with both the pregnancy and the consequence of the the resulting child of this action and then there's never there's absolutely no circumstance um, anywhere at any time for an abortion so those are your three three positions. Deep breath, everybody. Okay, it's tough stuff. So we need to let's go and we'll start to now. Obviously, the medical procedures and the drugs that we have now, right, did not exist in the time of the writing of the scriptures. And so we're going to go back and look at what do we know, what does God speak to, and that would address and help us to inform uh, our understanding of this. And so. I think we'll start with murder, right? What is murder? Make sure that we understand why it's wrong, that it is wrong, what constitutes murder. Um, once we establish that that, what we, we really know biblically what murder is, then we'll talk about moving to why does abortion fit that, that description. Okay. All right, let's look at Exodus 20.13, right? It says, you shall not murder. Right? So pro-life uh, pro and pro-choice advocates both affirm that murder is wrong. However, an issue uh, in abortion is whether or not the fetus or unborn child constitutes a person. While this question is often discussed philosophically or biologically, as Christians we must settle them out biblically. So in point A, we establish that God does pro prohibit murder, and then we move into what constitutes an, uh, a person. I do want to pause here, and we, there's a little bit in the appendix, but... 
Um, when, we, when we get to tying this in, right, we'll talk about, you know, what is murder taking human life? We'll talk about this is the unlawful. So God does allow in some cases. So think about capital punishment. You think about God's judgment. There are times when God righteously takes the life of someone. Mm -hmm. um, and so we look about the unlawful taking of a human life. Um, the commandment is not thou shalt not kill, but it's thou shalt not murder. But you will see, and I've seen this increasingly, probably the last five years, there are some who are beginning to argue that many times in response to the clear you know, revelations of science and ultrasounds and a lot of the developments that we have now that we didn't have in 73, that yeah, it is a person, but the mother's body and the mother's rights outweigh the rights of that person. And so I was, I was super shocked that that was something that started to emerge, but I've, I've heard several um, that say, yes, the baby is a human life, but it does not have the right to invade the womb of the mother. The mother has the right to expel that human life. And so we have to be prepared that at some point it may reach where the, the punisher tiger will, will concede that it is a human life. And we have to then go from arguing with that, that position. But most people, right, the vast majority that you're going to talk with, will try and justify and say it's not a human life yet. Okay? And there's a lot of legislation going on now in terms of engaging, in terms of trying to define uh, an unborn child as, having a, as being a person, as being protected as a person, defined as a person. Um, because it would give them legal protections that they don't have right now. So, okay, when does God ascribe personhood? Let's look at Genesis 4.1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a, help with, gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Okay, so just looking closely. Why is it significant that Eve conceived and bore Cain? When, was Cain, when did he become Cain? At conception, right? It doesn't say she conceived a fetus and later when she bore, it was Cain, right? There's no differentiation there. Uh, look at Psalm 139. This is a famous one. I remember in high school, I had just become a new believer, and uh, my friend, whose parents were Christians, was I was like, oh, what, what should we write our paper about? And he's like, abortion, and we started in on it, and his parents were, they pointed us right to Psalm 139, and I was like, oh, that's very, very clear. So, um, Aiden, you want to read there? Psalm 139, 13-16. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your, in, in your book, were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not, uh, there was not one of them. Yeah. And so who's writing this, you guys? I guess it's, it's in the Psalms. David, yes. Yeah. So, you know, what is, what is David's, you know, view of, and what is God's view expressed through David here of, 
You know, when did David's life begin? Yeah, in his mother's womb. Um, talks about all of his days were written and ordained when as yet there was none of them. So before he had experienced any days. Um, how does it describe, what do we see specifically in the language that speaks to him being in the womb? What are the, some of the words or phrases? We see in my mother's womb. What else do we see? He was fearfully wonderfully made. Mm-hmm. So we see God intimately involved in his formation. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see that towards the end, unformed substance. So there's even an acknowledgement that David's existence went through a process of God building, forming, skillfully fashioning him until he reaches his full um, uh, due date, I guess. I don't know, until he's ready to be delivered. But you'll notice that all the, if you look at all the references, every time it's me, my, I, all the way through. And so David associates all of those descriptions that that was me that he was addressing. It wasn't, there was this fetus and God was you know, working it, shaping it, and then I was born and then God knew me. He knew him as David throughout that whole process. Right? So there's a note here. The Bible never speaks of fetal life as chemical activity, cellular growth, or a vague force. Rather, the fetus in the mother's womb is described by the psalmist in vivid pictorial language as being shaped, fashioned, molded, and woven together by the personal activity of God. That is, as God formed Adam from the dust of the ground, he is actively involved in fashioning the fetus in the womb. Side note, my, one of my daughters is, is learning in science about chromosomes and DNA, and she's asking about Eve. I'm like, well, where did she get her chromosomes? She's like, she got from Adam... And like the rib, but like, so we had to talk about that. God's forming from the dust, and how did he make Adam? Like, it's kind of a mystery. You know, it's partly from him, but who knows? You know, took some more dust, and but it's an interesting question. But it's neat to hear our kids thinking about God's formation of, of life from the beginning. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I have to check it out someday. Okay. Uh, King David was, right, he mentions how he was a sinner from conception. Psalm 51.5. Okay, Psalm 51.5. Uh, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and it's in my mother conceived me. Right? He's talking about I and me, talking about how he was brought forth and conceived. And I, I would say this, this next one is probably one of the strongest ones, is a passage in Luke. Luke 1, 44. Let's turn to that. I thought we could read from that today. If you want to turn to Luke 1. So we're after the Christmas season. We've read a lot from Luke 2 about the birth of Jesus. And so in Luke 1... What's happened so far, up leading up to this point, is that uh, an angel has appeared uh, announcing that John the Baptist would be born. And uh, Mary and Elizabeth, right, respectively, are, uh, are, are, are due. 
or are not due, but are, are pregnant. And so, so let's start in um, verse 39. Okay. So in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So what, what do you see there? What's particular about the language? When the sound of your greeting reached what? Reached my ears. Then what happened? Yeah, little John, right? Little John jumped. She didn't say, I had, I had a convulsion. I had a con contraction, yeah. the lump of flesh inside of me, <laughs> right? She doesn't refer in all of these different ways, clump of cells. The baby, right? The baby. So this term, right, that she uses to describe John, who's in her womb, is the exact same word that's used to describe small infants, right? So... In, in the language that's being used, there is no distinction between a, a newborn baby and a baby in the womb. Same word is referred to both of them. They didn't say baby and this is a fetus. Right? It was a baby inside, it's a baby outside. And you can see just a little bit later, exact same word is used in 2.16, right? when it says, um, and they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. So same word there that we talked about earlier. I think it's also interesting, Scott, in that passage you just read mm -hmm. that Elizabeth says, how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? That she is already the mother mm -hmm. and there is already the child. He's already my Lord. Lord. Yes, mm -hmm. in her womb. Yeah. So you see several times a recognition from Elizabeth, right, speaking out this is a baby, right? She knows this is John. Yeah. You have a baby. We know that's the Lord. There's four people in this greeting. Right. You're a mother. I'm a mother. And in all instances, we're recognizing them as mother and yeah. child. Right. So that's an extremely good yeah. scripture to point to. Yeah, I think another thing, too, about this passage is a lot of times people try to separate uh, humanity from personhood. Mm -hmm. So the baby is a human because... It's not a rhinoceros. Right. That's a type of life. But it's not a person. Mm -hmm. You know, that should be avoided, uh, mm -hmm. afforded the rights of personhood. But here he's acting like a person because he's rejoicing mm -hmm. and responding. Yeah. And that's one thing that often is um, that separation. It's often somewhat jarring and astounding to see the, the mental loops that people will go through to try and justify certain positions. So sometimes it's, there's a certain mirroring you have to do to explain so you, they're a person outside the birth canal, but if you go back six, you know, a few inches, they're not a person. Like, yeah. it's very, mm -hmm. it's like you said, there, there's a certain wall that has to be drawn that if I hold this position, I, can, I cannot acknowledge mm -hmm. 
that that's that's a baby, that's a person. Okay, all right, let's see here. Let's maybe read this and we can just start with this next time. Okay, so part C, let's flip back to Exodus 21. If you want to look there, we have it in our, in our handout. So this is what we call, there's just kind of a special case if we look at the Old Testament law. We talked about how this is a great example, right? The Old Testament law informs us. It gives us a broad context of how God's laws are used and helps inform how we can apply them even today. So Exodus 21, 22 to 24. Anybody? Noah, you got it? Yep. He's like, I'm, he's got it. Exodus 21, 22 to 24. Men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that one could give birth prematurely, yet there is no injury. He shall surely be fined as a woman's husband may demand of him. And he shall pay as part of the judges, uh, pay as the judges decide. But if there is any further injury, then he shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. Okay. So. If you want to do any homework, right, you can uh, look through the kind of, there's some questions that we'll start with next time in terms of interpreting what is, be, what is happening in this case. What is the grammar, what does the language describe when it talks about injury, when it talks about giving birth prematurely. Um, what's going on here? Because there's a couple different positions that you can take and how you interpret the scripture greatly informs, you know, God's view of motherhood, children, okay? All right, so let's let's close in prayer and we'll go on with our worship. God, we are so thankful every day we come together to um, just study from your word. We're thankful for the way in which you bring us out of darkness into your light. And I know that there are probably many. I remember as a as a young teenager not understanding this this issue and reading from scriptures and, and slowly understanding and, and my mind being changed to understand what when life begins and what an abortion is. And, and I pray that as we go through this, you would give us an understanding that's clear from the scriptures and a longing to um, persuade and discuss and, and talk about with everyone who um, we have the opportunity, who, who this may apply to, um, what abortion really is and that uh, you would help us to argue in favor of life and the protection of life and I do pray that as our study goes on you'd help us to um, just have the trust and that you will uh, give us that ability to to share uh, your truth and that is just, um, your work that is that's being done and when you have those conversations pray that you'd be with us as we continue to worship and draw our eyes to you um, as our, our Father and the Creator of life and the Sustainer of life. And we give you thanks for um, these many praises that we had this morning and ask you to continually be with us. In your name, amen.